Yet the questions persisted in the minds of the laureates, in the angst of every horny 15-year-old on the planet. Am I nothing but sparking chemistry? Am I a magnet in the ether? Am I more than my eyes, my ears, my tongue? Am I the little thing behind those things? The thing looking out from inside? But who looks out from its eyes? What does it reduce to? Who am I? Who am I that I embrace the void? Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 137 of Embrace the Void, where apparently this week is going to be the bad week, though that designation has lost all meaning. I am your host, Aaron, and this week my guest and I continue our ongoing multipod conversation on panpsychism. Like consciousness, this conversation is already ubiquitous, which means it's been inside of you all along. Just in case, though, here's the linear version, too. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Emerson Green, host of the Counter Apologetics podcast and the amazingly named podcast Walden Pod. Emerson, would you like to say hi to the void? I would like to shake my fist at the void. Okay, we'll, we'll get you around to embracing <laughs> it by the end of this, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I wanted to first give you just shout out for the fact that you somehow managed to secure both the name Emerson and the name Walden Pod at the same time. I think that's really impressive branding work. I assume your your parents are partly to blame, but I think that you should get a lot of credit for that. I think I deserve all the credit in both cases, actually. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, full credit to you then. Um, are you. you actually a fan of like Walden or Emerson or, or transcendentalism or any of those things, or is it just a happy uh, linguistic coincidence? Um, I used to be, but mm-hmm. it just kind of faded over time. But yeah, I read Walden like five or six years ago and I was like really taken in by it. Oh, interesting. And I, I also just never want to let a good pun go to waste. Yeah, that's fair. Do you, cause I mean like when I try to reread Walden, I, it, I didn't love it to begin with and it feels increasingly kind of cringe in various ways. Um, I don't know if you've if you have that experience in your attempts to reread it. Yeah, I mean, I had kind of like a like high school like libertarianism when I was younger. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I was just like, yes, when I first read it, and then as time went on, and I you know gradually declined into collectivism and postmodern neo Marxism. You know, then I, I like you know slowly uh, <laughs> lost my taste for it. But I still have a soft Getting spot older, for it, like you do in the in the post two thousands. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, how how do you identify or self-identify ideologically speaking, and and what sort of does drive these kinds of shifts for you towards your SJW postmodern um, <laughs> neoliberal Marxist, et cetera, et cetera? 
Um, ideologically speaking, I'm not that interesting. I'm just, I have like libertarian socialist sensibilities, but mm-hmm. philosophically it kind of started with philosophy of religion for me. Um, you know, as I imagine it does with a lot of people, like I grew up in a really religious environment and, um, around in kind of like an anti-intellectual environment as well. And then, you know, my parents started noticing me, um, kind of like losing my religion, I guess, as like a teenager. And they sent me to a, like an apologetics camp, I guess that was like two weeks. It was basically like a Christian reeducation camp. And, um, uh-huh. it was like uh, two weeks and like 80 hours of lectures in those two weeks that I sat through. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was like, it was half about like why God existed, but it was like half about why communism was bad. Uh-huh. Like it was equal parts. Sure. But, um, things go together, generally speaking. Yeah. And so it, but it was like, um, like I said, I grew up in a kind of anti-intellectual environment. It was the first time, like, it was like my introduction to all kinds of things I had never, you know, like I had never heard the word epistemology, you know, and I was uh-huh. like, wait, there's a whole, there's a whole field of study, just how we know things like that's, that's awesome. So I've been kind of, you know, into actually not really into philosophy ever since, because it took me a while to realize that that was the name of all the things I was interested in. Like, I often wish I could just go back to my former self and be like, you know, hey, it's philosophy of all the things that you think you're interested in. Like, right. you know, it's philosophy of biology, not biology. It's like philosophy of mind, not neuroscience and so on. But and um, so, so did you like do the classic, like go to college, lose your, your faith kind of experience? No, no, I lost my faith way before I went to college. Okay. But I remember um, something Galen Strawson said that resonated with me. Or he said he tried to go into the sciences as well. And he mm-hmm. felt like he was in a building that started on the fourth floor. He was like, there's, you know, way more fundamental issues that I feel like need to be dealt with before we get to these questions. And um, that was kind of my experience as well with looking into the sciences and eventually, you know, going into much more fundamental issues, which turns out to be the realm of philosophy. Fair enough. So what sort of fundamental issues do you find particularly compelling? Well, you know, like the one we're talking about today. I mean, it's mostly like my interests are still mostly philosophy of religion and philosophy of mind. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing that's been bothering me for the last couple of years, I guess, has been the mind body problem. And I was eventually backed into this weird view that I'll be trying to defend today. Yeah, fair enough. I'm just curious on your on the religion side of things before we dive into the uh, philosophy of mind stuff. Do you feel like there is a, a functional definition of, of religion that um, can be marshaled. And do you feel like we can say things about the, the goodness or badness of religion, broadly speaking, in our world? Um, you mean like, am I a non-cognitivist about certain well, things? Well, I or? mean, first of all, like, is there any category of things that are you know consistently picked out by the word religion, I think is an interesting question. And then um, also, like can we say what the purpose of religion is or has been and does it still serve that purpose and those kinds of questions? No, I mean, religious is kind of a suitcase term. Like it, you really have to be more specific, but, um, I would say that I would still say that religion is just like an intersection of so many different issues. Like if you're into philosophy of religion, you know, generally speaking, then eventually you're going to be end up, you're going to end up talking about philosophy of mind and biology and Mm -hmm. metaphysics and epistemology and um you know like i said epistemology was the thing that kind of caught my eye the first when i was first exposed to all these ideas and you know criticizing religious epistemology was kind of my intro to epistemology generally 
So mm-hmm. even though it is like, you know, an almost absurdly vague um, term, religion, I think it can still, you know, it's still useful. And it's still, mm-hmm. I think, one of the most interesting areas of philosophy, because like I said, just you, it sort of touches on all the other areas. Right. Hence the counter apologetics podcast, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what did you find in that 80 hours of indoctrination that, that you went through? Do you feel like there was like an important consistent theme or did you have any insights into sort of the mindsets of the people who were trying to push this stuff into you, especially on the religious side, or is it the same sort of standard, like boiled down philosophical arguments that a lot of us are sort of familiar with? I mean, it was a lot of bad like philosophy and a lot of bad science, but for someone who's never been exposed to really any science or any philosophy, it's like still just useful because you know, you can learn a lot from learning bad mm-hmm. epistemology. And um, I mean, honestly, it really, because they're, they're just really like standard conservative Christians. Like this was in like Colorado, which is a major hub of like, you know, all these different organizations that you hear about, like focus on the family. And mm-hmm. um, so it really kind of solidified my image of what Christianity was, which was basically evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been to my own detriment in some ways, because I'll end up arguing with people who don't share those views. And I'm like, well, you're not really a Christian. You know, you're like one of those like liberal, you know, not really like, I just don't take those forms of Christianity seriously. And it turns out they are like in a tiny minority. So it's not like I'm totally in the wrong there. Yeah. I guess it is complicated because I certainly am sympathetic to individuals in the more liberal ends of religious spectrums. Um, But I, I do agree that like the there the concerns about the the more extreme ends of those spectrums doesn't sort of fade away by just by thinking about those individuals. Yeah, and they're not the ones um, running the government right now. Sure, that's certainly true. Um, the the moderate ones can't seem to even get elected. <laughs> so okay, so let's talk about the one that you were particularly interested in, which is the philosophy of mind question. And as you were saying, you have a, a view one that we've discussed on the show before that you um, wanted to come on and defend, which I thought was great because I had listened to your several episodes on this subject over on Walden Pod, and I definitely recommend people um, check that one out. So this is the the view of panpsychism, which we have talked about on the show as well is sort of tied up with issues around the subjective and the objective. And we did an episode uh, where Hunter Ash covered one one kind of argument, though I think sufficiently distinct from the argument that you seem to be most interested in. Um, and then you and I talked about this on the Right to Reason podcast. Um, and in almost all of these conversations, not, not on your um, show, but on these other shows, we haven't really gotten into the topic of, of strong emergence yet. I came on your show and we talked about my view some. Um, but I wanted to talk about sort of the problem with um, strong emergence and try to see if we can make clear to folks why this sort of standard model of consciousness that I think a lot of people have could be potentially um, flawed. So maybe just to get things started, do you want to kind of give a map of how you see what, what would you see to be the major options within philosophy of mind? Like what are the positions that you think are reasonably on the table right now? Well, I mean, my version of panpsychism has to do with neutral monism, actually. It's not something we got to talk about um, the last Mm -hmm. time we spoke. Um, You know, you were defending your particular type of neutral monism, and the thing is most modern panpsychists I'm aware of are also neutral monists. They subscribe Mm -hmm. to something called 
Brazilian monism or dual aspect monism. Mm-hmm. And um, if I weren't a panpsychist, I would probably still be a Rosalian monist because there's no attempt to reduce the mind to matter. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of, it's a more elegant solution than that. Um, but just to give, well, in with regards to um, the hard problem, mm-hmm. I would say that, well, first of all, it's worth pointing out that we created the hard problem, like with our common sense metaphysics. Like we have a speculative idea of what matter is and, you know, what it isn't. And then we ended up with this problem of how do we get the experiential from the non-experiential or, you know, how do we transition from objective description to subjective description? And the reason that we have that problem is because we have kind of endorsed this speculative idea of what fundamental reality is and what it's not. And then we ended up with the problem. So it's not like the hard problem is this thing that we'll never get rid of. It's something that, you know, we created by adopting a certain speculative metaphysics, which I only wanted to mention because, you know, a lot of people want to say that, like, well, you know, you're the you're the panpsychist. You're the one who's speculating about, you know, the nature of fundamental reality. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. when we're talking about the intrinsic nature of fundamental reality or just the intrinsic nature of matter that's not us, then, yeah, we're, it's it's all speculation. You know, like if you're a materialist, you're also speculating. It's just mm-hmm. your speculative conception of matter creates this unsolvable problem. So we could we could motivate the speculative conception of matter as sort of different from mind by pointing to what seem to be distinct features and, and, and by pointing to like the conventional distinctions in the world between minded entities and entities that don't appear to have minds at least. So like there is something to back up the idea that it seems like um, depending on your definition of mind, it may not be fully coextensive with matter throughout the universe. Not to say that you can't argue that it is ultimately that way, but like I just want to say that I feel like there's a little bit of um, prima facie justification, a little bit of you know early evidence to suggest that like it is uh, sort of reasonable to refer to the universe as being made up largely of things that don't have minds and then that minds exist in, you know, certain very um, specific kinds of environments. You know, you might think that, but it's, it's mostly prejudice. The reasons Mm -hmm. for supposing that there's non-conscious matter are actually really, really bad. And it's, it's mostly just our prejudice that allows us to believe that. And it's also, you know, worth noting that consciousness is unobservable. So there's no way that we could, um, you know, we've never observed matter to be non-conscious, I guess is what I'm saying. And the um, the reasons for supposing that there is such a thing as non-conscious matter are are pretty shockingly inadequate. But um, with, okay. with just so, to, I mean, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there. Yeah, no problem. And I think we should definitely talk through those reasons. Um, but well, yeah, why don't you go ahead and see what, what, what are the, like the positions that you see as, you know, if you truly had to abandon this panpsychist view that you'll be defending, where would you fall to next? So the main options for dealing with the hard problem, you can, I mean, you know, if you want to oversimplify it, which, you know, I do for our purposes today, Mm -hmm. you can sort of divide it up into consciousness emerged and consciousness didn't emerge. So on the Mm -hmm. didn't emerge side of that would be panpsychists who say it didn't emerge because it was always there. And then, illusionists or eliminativists who say that it didn't emerge humans aren't actually conscious right so that's one side of it the other side is you know there there was non-conscious matter and then eventually consciousness emerged and so 
the meaning of a statement like consciousness emerges is extremely different depending on which type of emergence you're envisioning. So we have to distinguish between weak emergence and strong emergence. Um, I think most people rightly reject strong emergence as not really something that's worth taking seriously. Um, but even the people who like want to say that consciousness is like fluidity or niftiness or PowerPoint or something like that, mm-hmm. um, meaning it's like fully reducible to its component parts, um, those people have a pretty fuzzy idea of what they mean by emergence. You know, like mm-hmm. it's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. And then when you try to actually get into it, but just to distinguish between strong and weak types of emergence, um, pretty much everyone, when they use the word emergence, is talking about weak emergence, as far as I can tell. So, you know, even if you if you if it's not really in your vocabulary, you probably are familiar with this you know type of emergence. Like when you go from protons, neutrons, and electrons to atoms, it's not like there's been a new ingredient called an atom that's been like you know introduced to the universe that wasn't there before. Like an atom is just kind of a useful way of talking about collections of more fundamental bits of stuff. So there's like nothing new that's actually been added to the universe there. Whereas like strong emergence would be, there's something that like an actually new ingredient that wasn't there before and, you know, isn't reducible to its parts has now like appeared in the scale of emergence. Now, I think it's fair to point out, like at least say for folks who are not, typically in interested or arguing about philosophy of mind, it's probably true that the strong emergence view is the the neutral view, the standard model, which is, you know, there was a world, there was a universe with no conscious things and it just rocks and fire and such. And then eventually life got complicated enough that you know, arranged itself in such a way that they created a little Cartesian theater inside of the organism where phenomenal consciousness started to exist, right? I think that's, that I feel like is the model that I was taught in, you know, intro to biology or something like that, or intro to evolutionary psych or something. Um, Do you agree that that's sort of probably the model that a lot of folks have in their head for where consciousness came to be? Yes, but I don't think that they would call that strong emergence. Like, I don't, I think that they would consider it, because think about, like, all the analogies that people give when they try to, you know, talk people out of panpsychism, like saying, you know, by making parody arguments like, you know, PowerPointism or pan-niftyism or something like that, like, those things are all weakly emergent. You know, like, they're trying to say, like, well, you know, wouldn't you, if you're a panpsychist, aren't you also committed to the idea that, like, everything is fluid or something like that? You know, because uh-huh. it's it's easy to see. They, they just appeal to, um, you know, unrelated examples of successful reduction to try to make the case. I guess I feel like you're right that, like, secular individuals, folks who are more on the sciencey side of things, maybe would lean more towards the kind of weak, reductive, you know, it's just your brain doing things in a certain kind of way. But I do think there is a strong inclination amongst a lot of, I mean, like, given that the majority of people are religious, and that the majority of religious people probably believe in some sort of dualistic soul, like, I think there is a strong inclination for a lot of people to see whatever's going on inside of us as being kind of uniquely separate from all of the other, you know, bumping into things of the universe. It's, it's that's definitely correct, but they're not really my audience, I guess. Sure, fair, my fair enough. Audience. Just, yeah, like most normal people are like common sense substance dualists. Like, um, you know, a lot of people believe in ghosts, or they think that something, like I don't know, body mm-hmm. switching or something is like at least 
coherent or possible. But so yeah, your but your average like naturalist or materialist or skeptic is some kind of emergentist. And part of why I like panpsychism is because you know we're kind of making explicit what has been implicitly accepted, which is that you know pretty much everyone is an emergentist, even if it's by purely natural processes. Consciousness didn't exist, and then at some point it did. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is, I mean, the route that I usually go to try to to try to break down like where people actually disagree mm-hmm. is I try to just outline a few premises that are pretty non-controversial. And if you accept all of them, then you're probably a panpsychist. And if you want to avoid panpsychism, then you're going to have to reject one of these four. So do you mind if I go through the four yeah, really quick? Sure. Go ahead. So the first one is just material composition, you know, like we're made of matter and nothing else. So those people are, you know, my imagined audience, you know, like basically the place where I was like four or five years ago, like thinking that, well, consciousness has something to do with the brain, you know, and like, that's all there is to it. And it's like, okay, great. You know, it turns out there's many, many different, totally incompatible views that are all consistent with that view. Like, you know, I used to think that there was basically just materialism and substance dualism and, you know, that was it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a substance dualist, so I'm a materialist. But, um, you know, but that's, you're, you're that's saying not, you're not a materialist, though, right? No, I'm not a, a materialist. A premise that you think that you can still rely on, even though you don't believe it yourself? Well, it gets kind of tricky because I'm defining materialism. I'm using it in two different ways. So sorry about that. But it's okay. in one sense, in this specific instance, like this premise, it's just the idea that humans are composed of matter alone. But materialists, usually it's taken to mean like humans are made of matter alone. And matter has this very specific nature. You know, it doesn't involve the mental in any way. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes I call it Cartesian matter to annoy materialists because mm-hmm. they imagine themselves to be like these opponents of Descartes. But, you know, Dan Dennett and Descartes both basically agree on what the intrinsic nature of matter is. So mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. materialism in one sense, that there's nothing but matter and it's totally non-conscious. But there's a broader sense of materialism, which is just that you're not made of anything other than matter, but that matter might have a nature. It might have further properties or another aspect that's not appreciated right now. Okay, good. Yeah, that's a good clarification. So your view is we are made of matter and all matter is conscious. And in that sense, you're a materialist. We're made of physical matter and people are confused about what physical matter is. Sure. Yeah, so I that's, think that's that's a fair position, at least. I, I just, it's okay, so so continue on. You've got three other premises, I think. Yeah, and so if you want to reject that one, then you're a dualist. So the second premise is just Nagalian consciousness is real. So, you know, just the fact that it's like something to be is real and not an illusion. So you can reject mm-hmm. that premise if you want. You can accept something like Nagalian consciousness is not real, the problem with that is that it is false, <laughs> like uh, pretty obviously so. And um, it's it's pretty amazing that there seems to be more and more philosophers who are flirting with the idea that it's not like anything to be and that they're not conscious. And, um, you know, like I said, I grew up in like a kind of anti-intellectual environment. And I, the first time I heard the phrase, there's some things that are so stupid, only an academic could believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't like it very much, but it keeps on popping up in my mind these days when I hear people saying like, you know, doubting their own consciousness. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't go so far as to think it is is super duper dumb. And like, we did a two parter with Keith Frankish where we talked about illusionism, and like, I, I, I do have concerns about it because I think his his view he do, he splits it into like strong illusionism and weak illusionism and this the weak view is you know your phenomenal experiences are unreliable and i think we all buy that like we all buy the idea that like we could be wrong about what's going on with our sensory experiences or things or our qualia in that sense um but then there's the stronger illusionism view which when it's stated directly seems to be something like you're saying that there is no internal states of awareness no phenomenal consciousness at all but it's tricky because i think keith and others sometimes also say it's not like philosophical zombies where there's no lights on on the inside because they do want to say that all the same functions are occurring as what is going on in your system because we're all effectively on that view philosophical zombies and and there i do have i have, I have trouble believing that we could be you know that like essentially the cogito could be wrong that like it's not true that if you are ex- think that you are experiencing phenomenal consciousness that you could be somehow wrong about the fact that you are experiencing um phenomenal consciousness is that your same intuition as well yeah of course and like i don't i think that is what they're saying i think they're saying that the cogito is wrong mm-hmm and, and um, we can say that it's wrong in the sense that, like, the eye is not the eye that, like, yeah, I don't Descartes believe in the eye either. Away with, right? But it's like the experiences are occurring. Part is undeniable. It seems like as a as a fundamental truth. Um, now, I mess You'd with that idea. Be. I mean, well, like, I um, when I teach AI ethics, I've been teaching the book Blind Sight um, this semester, which I'm really enjoying doing, and it's a book about a character. The, the, the main protagonist believes that he is himself a Chinese room in the like thought experiment mm-hmm. sense of there's nothing going on inside essentially um and we sort of wrestle in the class with the idea of like if you could have a book from someone's first person perspective where they're narrating the story could they be wrong about the fact that they are consciously experiencing the thing that they are narrating um and and the book i think does a really good job trying to make the case for the illusionist view uh, i'm still not ultimately convinced though so i think i i still land with you on the side of at least that's the least plausible of the views for me at the moment. Yeah. And I, I like reading illusionists because they, they point out things that are true. They just draw this really absurd conclusion from it. Like if I were to give like an oversimplified view, it's like, well, look, you, your intuitions are wrong about all sorts of things. Like you are not, you know, being shown the true nature of reality of, or of, you, you know, the inner workings of your own brain or even your own mind. And mm-hmm therefore consciousness isn't real and it's like no i I can be confused about all kinds of things but i can't i I just can't doubt that i'm having a phenomenal experience right now like just because i can just i can be wrong about all kinds of things all kinds of things are illusions but you know and then there's kind of the quick and dirty like refutation of illusionism which is just you know what is this illusion appearing in if if not consciousness and it's just like an illusion is an actual instance of the saying of the thing you're saying is an illusion. Right. Okay. So two premises down. I'm, I'm agreeing so far. I think what are our, our other premises here? The third one is related to the second one, which is just that consciousness is not vague. So this one I think should be pretty non-controversial. It's just that, you know, in, I mean, Nagalian consciousness. <laughs> There's no such thing in philosophy. Sure. <laughs> I know I should know better, but. Um, More depending panpsychism. Pan I think, you know, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> use things like obviously or uncontroversial. I'm just saying. Fair enough. Um, 
so this is what Hunter talked about when when he was here. But I think it's almost like mm-hmm. a question of definitions. That's why that's why I was you know I'm tempted to say it should be non-controversial because mm-hmm. if you're saying consciousness is vague, then you're not talking about Nagelian consciousness. But um, uh-huh. so if if consciousness doesn't admit of borderline cases, then well, hang on, let me back up a second. So again, by consciousness, I just mean that it's like something to be. So the, on one, the lights are on versus the lights are off. Yeah, and if you try to imagine a borderline case, mm-hmm. you know, well, the lights are kind of on. Okay, well then the lights are on. Like, right. you know, so it can't kind of be like something. If it's kind of like something, then it's like something. So if you try to imagine, on the one end we have it's like something, and on the other end it's not like something. There are no degrees of consciousness if you're right. defining consciousness in the very specific way that I'm defining it. Right. Now um, there are degrees of brightness, and we could correspond that to like increasingly sophisticated interstates of being. But you're yeah. saying that like there's there's either lights on or lights off at the baseline. Yeah, and you can be conscious of more things. Like yeah, there can mm-hmm. be degrees of consciousness in practically every sense of the word consciousness, except the one, the famous one from Thomas Nagel. So it can't seem to be like something. It can't be kind of like something. It either is or it is not like something. There's no middle ground to be had between those two states. So there's no borderline cases. And that's all we mean when we say consciousness is not vague. It's not vague as to whether you know something is conscious. Yeah, I think one thing that could get conflated there for folks would be like the richness of the experience that like not not like rationality or mathematical capacity, but just like you know, how vivid are my little bits of qualia that they could get sort of turned up as, as the um, the systems involved become more uh, advanced. Um, but you're, that, that doesn't seem to be in conflict with what you are saying. It's just similar, similar in feel to what we mean by this kind of sentience or phenomenal consciousness. Yeah, that's right. And just to give the encapsulated version of what Hunter was saying, is if consciousness doesn't admit of borderline cases then that means a minor particulate change marks the leap from non-conscious matter to conscious matter. For example, in like a fetus, which kind of runs through the gamut of emergence in nine months. So, you know, it'll seem arbitrary, no matter which point you pick, it'll seem arbitrary that it was that utterly precise change that caused this, you know, radical change in nature. So you're trying to imagine... You know, and there were a lot of, um, like, I think the co-founders of epigenetics and population genetics were both panpsychists. And I kind of suspect that if you spend a lot of time thinking about this particular area of biology where most people suppose um, consciousness emerged, you know, most people think that bacteria aren't conscious, but that, um, you know, cats probably are. Mm -hmm. So people who kind of spend a lot of time in, I think, microbiology or genetics or something, you know, it probably occurs to them, like, wait, where did consciousness emerge exactly? And, um, you know, like I said, it's kind of like a, you know, like just there's a pile of sand, you remove one at a time, and it's like, when does it cease to become a pile? It's like, no matter which one you pick, it's going to be arbitrary. There's clearly a difference between a pile of sand and not a pile of sand. But it seems ridiculous to say, you know, it's the 4,957th grain of sand, because you could just say, well, why wasn't it four grains later? Or you know, seven grains earlier. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little kind nervous. Of, or I'm a little skeptical of these paradox of the heap kind of arguments. I feel like there could just be problems there that again go back to our ways of chunking the world, but that don't necessarily mean that 
somewhere out. Like, they'll necessarily mean that, like, somewhere between generation, you know, 1000 and 1010 of this bacteria, they became advanced enough that they were starting to have, you know, depictions of their environment sensorily or something. Well, I mean, that that sounds really implausible to me, but that's the emergentist view. I mean, if you think that there is non-conscious matter and then obviously you're conscious now, so it happened at some point. And I'm just saying no matter which point you pick, because remember, the thing we're talking about is not vague. There are no borderline cases of Nigelian consciousness. So at some point, there was, you know, some atom or something that was put in place. And then all of a sudden, there's this radical change in nature. There's this thing that wasn't there before, Nigelian consciousness, that is now there. And just any way you slice it, it just seems like strong emergence to me. Yeah, I guess I'm just not, I'm still not fully convinced that I, I, I'm, I have to abandon that position as, a, as at least a plausible view. I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's, that, like, things, did, you know, like, especially given that, like, sentience is the weirdest thing in the universe, as far as I can tell, that, like, seems to have causal efficacy of any sort. It's the weirdest causally interacting thing in the universe, and so it doesn't seem implausible to me at least on its face that like it also emerges in super weird ways from just the right kind of arrangements of of you know bags of magic waters which is what basically we are at this point well i mean just to be clear i don't say that radical emergence is unintelligible with absolute certainty i just say that radical emergence is unintelligible to me like i'm unable to imagine a genuine reduction of mind to matter or a transition from you know, subjective to objective or vice versa. So if I could quote, yeah, if I could quote Richard Swinburne, who's a dualist, he said, I don't claim to know that there isn't an emergentist account. I'm claiming we'll never be able to describe or understand one, which is completely, I mean, the people who think that there, that there is an emergentist account, you'll notice that they never actually describe, you know, the actual emergence of mind. They appeal to analogies you know, totally unrelated examples of successful reduction and say, yeah, consciousness is just like that. It's just like fluidity or niftiness or. Yeah. And I I don't like um, appeals to analogy when it comes to consciousness, because again, I think it is the weirdest fucking thing in the universe. (laughs) Um, So like, I think attempts to compare it to any of those other, I, I agree with you that those reductions don't like give us any purchase here. I just also, wonder like you're so so what you're saying is right and I, I agree with you about this right it's weird but it's not that you can't imagine it i mean you can't you can't imagine the the concrete x you know like scientific explanation for how x you know arrangement of particles brings about the right thing to create consciousness but like you can imagine it and it's just it's annoying and weird to think that like just one particle out of place and that's the end of that consciousness but um, I don't think that, that that weirdness alone or that, you know, dissatisfactory sort of feel to it is enough to necessarily uh, completely abandon the view. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'll at least say that I'm like, I'm hesitant still on this third premise a little bit, I guess. That consciousness is not vague? Well, so I'm hesitant on the idea that the lack of vagueness raises a kind of problem that drives us to the view that consciousness must therefore be ubiquitous rather than that there is this very weird emergence relationship that happens in in very concrete cases. 
Well, we actually agree on that. I should probably have made this clear earlier, but the mm-hmm. case for panpsychism doesn't hang on emergence. Like Philip mm-hmm. Goff, um, you know, who's kind of out and about recently for panpsychism, has said pretty straightforwardly that he doesn't share Galen Strawson's intuition, that which is my intuition as well. That you just you couldn't get experience from wholly non-experiential stuff. Like mm-hmm. so, Philip Goff's arguments for panpsychism have nothing to do with opposition to emergence. So you could still take this. Um, you know, kind of open-minded approach to strong emergence and still end up a panpsychist. It's not like the case for panpsychism hangs on being anti-emergence. That's fair. I just wanted to give a little bit of pushback since I think that like a lot of folks outside of the tradition might not immediately be like, you know, why do I have to abandon this idea that like the right arrangement of brain cells is what is causing consciousness in a, you know, in an impossible to fully describe or explain, but not magical or supernatural kind of way. It's um, it's weird, but not impossible weird, at least. Yeah, but I don't I mean, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Uh huh. Yeah. Like I, okay. I, I mean, you're, I mean, my consciousness is totally a result of brain activity. And so this is another part that seems tricky to me is, and maybe you want to get your last premise out before I dive into this too much, but it seems to me that the panpsychist is left with the same line drawing problem that the non-panpsychists have in terms of, you know, which entities have um, sufficient complexity that they the more sophisticated kinds of uh, what it's you know of of conscious states emerge from them, um, and and what does it mean for the entities that aren't so sophisticated? What is there? What its likeness sort of feel or look like? Um, but did you want to get your fourth premise out first? Well, we can definitely get to what you just said. I'll just yeah, okay. say really quickly that um, there's sort of a disanalogy there with um, which is just that any example of emergence that involves going from the objective to the objective is different mm-hmm. than any example of emergence going from the objective to the subjective. Yeah. Strong so, agree on that for sure. Right. So, um, but the fourth premise is, you know, it's just radical emergence is impossible. Okay. And the thing is most people I think would just want to sign on to, I mean, a lot of times I've noticed when you're talking about panpsychism, people kind of have their phasers set to panpsychism so they're just going to resist like <laughs> literally everything you say sure. and it's like if, if they didn't know you were panpsychist they'd probably agree with all kinds of things like you know science only tells us about you know behavior and structure and disposition and relation and that sort of thing and can't tell us about the intrinsic nature of matter yeah. um but when you're talking to a panpsychist who says that then they want to push back on that even though it's like pretty non-controversial in philosophy of science but um, the same kind of goes for radical emergence. Like, um, so just to rehash the four premises, it's just material composition, um, Nagelian consciousness is real, consciousness is not vague, and radical emergence is impossible. So if you, sec- if you accept all four of those like I do, then you're probably a panpsychist. I don't really see how you can avoid being a panpsychist if you accept all four of these. And to me, they seem kind of obviously true. Maybe not at first, but they seem obviously true. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. obviously. Um, that's <laughs> and funny. let me I've just been say, a movie quick, where a guy uses obviously in very deliberately, kind of a sarcastic way. <laughs> I gotta stop saying obviously. It's okay. It's uh, it's an understandable um thing to get in the habit of. Uh, so 
Well, can I yeah, just break I, down what, really quick a, a problem yeah. that I've, I keep meaning to come back to? So most people, like I said, don't believe consciousness is an example of weak emergence. Like they might be tempted to accept those four premises and then mm-hmm. still try to wriggle out of panpsychism um, because they'll just say, you know, like I said, they'll use these unrelated examples of successful reduction and say mm-hmm. consciousness is just like that without really substantiating how we're supposed to get the subjective from the objective. They're just, like I said, appealing to um, analogies that actually do make sense. But um, so most people believe that consciousness is an example of weak emergence. But if you accept that, then I think you're committed to the idea that it's vague. Like, because all weak emergence is vague. You know, all forms of... uh, But the thing is, if consciousness is vague, then it's not Nagalian consciousness. So the weak emergence option, which I think is the most widely subscribed to, um, terminates in illusionism or eliminativism. And if you accept one through three, but still insist that consciousness emerged, then that's strong emergence. Yeah, okay. So there's a couple of things there. First of all, I just want to say I'm sympathetic to the, again, the, the analogies to other reductions is problematic and that the subjective-objective divide is a big issue here. And that's why um, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to a lot of what you're doing here. I, I guess I, I, I'm not digging in on the strong emergence side of things and for any other reason that I'm just not fully feeling the intuition that should be compelling me to abandon it. Um, I don't, I don't doubt that, that you strongly feel one. Um, now, yeah, I, what else do I want to say? I agree with, oh, and I also agree primarily with the points about like, we don't have access to direct access to the, the evidence of consciousness in other entities. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the, what it's like, you know, to be a bad problem. The... The one point you made there that I'm not sure I'm totally convinced on, and I'd like to hear sort of maybe you can lay it out for me a little bit more, the idea that that all weak emergence is vague in a way that is particularly problematic here, but isn't problematic for all of the other things that we get by making sense of through weak emergence. Because I, I guess this just goes back to your premise that just like it... I guess what I'm saying is, do I'm not convinced that all weak emergence is necessarily vague, first of all. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, the thing is, most of the examples that people appeal to mm-hmm. are vague. Are so, vague, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're, so if you're Dan Dennett and someone asks you, where does consciousness emerge exactly? He'll say, when does the day become the night or something like that? And, you know, so that's, that's an example of, I mean, like a, that would be an example of something that is vague. You know, it, it's sure. not, there's not a specific Or, or when, when something becomes an intentional system rather than a design system or something like that. It's, I don't, I don't I'm not familiar with that. And it, when oh, an that, intentional... that's another, that's another Dennett account of how oh. basically essentially when you start treating an entity as if there's something it's like to be that entity and that doing so makes it more functional to engage with that entity, like playing a chess playing robot right just treating it as if it's a chess player is better than trying to know its code essentially Mm -hmm. um that at that point that's all there is to being an intentional system and that like this goes along with kinds of views like illusionism where it's just like there's nothing else to talk about besides whether it consistently has the disposition to engage in behavior that looks intentional well for i mean for other examples of emergence just consider that it pretty, I'm, I'm, I assume most people accept that 
you know, biology is reducible to chemistry and chemistry is reducible to physics. Whoa there, and buddy. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm you're making fine. an intentional effort to uh, stop saying obviously. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> this was your moment. <laughs> um, so th- it's not like there is a clear line of demarcation where it's like, and here is where biology starts or like, mm-hmm. and here is where chemistry starts. So that's what I mean where it's like things that emerge, it's not clear, like there's obviously a difference between biology and physics, but it's not like there is a, you know, hard and fast demarcation. It's like like the problem of like fucking viruses, right? Like are viruses biological or not sort of situation? Are they alive? Yeah, kind of. It's, I'm trying to think of other examples that people give. Do you mind if I read a quote from Nagel? Because he mentions a bunch of these. Yeah. This is from what is it like to be a bat? Um, Every reductionist has his favorite analogy for modern science. It is most unlikely that any of these unrelated examples of successful reduction will shed light on the relation of mind to brain. But philosophers share the general human weakness for explanations of what is incomprehensible in terms of what is suited, or sorry, in terms suited for what is familiar and well understood, though entirely different. This has led to the acceptance of implausible accounts of the mental, largely because they would permit familiar kinds of reduction. Without consciousness, the mind-body problem would be much less interesting. With consciousness, it seems hopeless. The most important and characteristic feature of conscious mental phenomena is very poorly understood. Most reductionist theories do not even try to explain it. End quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I buy that it's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to give up just just yet. I though. know, I know. I'm kidding. Most, uh, not I'm not actually kidding, but like I'm I'm sympathetic to your desire not to give up. Um, so let's talk about your views some more then, since we've we've sort of. Um, I think given as many ways of trying to make sense of why people might want to be skeptical of um, emergent kinds of views. So so panpsychism, as you said, it's a non-emergent view. You think that sentience is a fundamental feature of the universe. Now, a typical um, version that people have in their minds is, are you saying, you know, chairs and tables are conscious or something like that? And my understanding is that's not your view. So do you want to clarify where you locate the, uh, what it's likeness in the universe? Yeah. So I think it, it might be helpful just to like give a more general account of, of my panpsychism, which is a mm-hmm. kind of Rosalian panpsychism. Um, so it's, it's, like I said, it's based off neutral monism, which I kind of divide into two major branches it's i call them neither nor and both and and i believe you're a neither nor neutral monist which is just that you know fundamental reality or or matter or whatever is um neither mental nor material mm-hmm. and then there's the both and neutral monists which say who say that you know it's both mental and material and um yeah and i'm i think you're right that i do fall in that category but i don't fall hard there like i don't have like I'm still feeling out my commitments as a neutral monist, so I am sympathetic yeah. to hearing why you are. I'm guessing you're more of a, you're more of a both and from what I gather. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, one I mentioned this last time we spoke that one problem with the neither nor is like you you end up with the hard problem because sure. you know the mental is still emerging from something non-mental, but you kind of have a second hard problem, which is you have the material emerging from you know something that's non-material. Like you have material properties and immaterial properties emerging from something that's neither material. Nor yeah. Why have one problem when you can have two problems? <laughs> Why have one irresolvable problem when you can have two of them? Um, I like to make things worse, not better. That's my job. <laughs> well, the both and is not like a, you know, like a holy trinity kind of thing. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. like multiple things in one somehow, but it's it, the, the both and 
is usually like a dual aspect monism. So it's like there's an internal aspect, which is, you know, the consciousness aspect, and that's the unobservable aspect. And then there's the external behavioral, structural, relational, dispositional, et cetera, um, aspect that, you know, empirical science can tell us about. Now, but I like this you... because it doesn't make any attempt to reduce the mind to matter. And mm-hmm. because I think it, it kind of elegantly explains, um, you know, why consciousness is unobservable and while maintaining, a, you know, a sort of monism. Would you acknowledge at least that you still need some sort of bridging laws to explain the relationship between those two aspects of the fundamental nature of reality? Because you're still, there's still some interaction, it seems like, going on between the internal and the external. There's um, actually no interaction. It's just, it's the same thing, just from two different points of view. So, like, if you are the chunk of matter, then you can, you know, quote-unquote, observe the internal um, the internal aspect. But from the outside, you only see the dispositional aspect. That seems, that seems tricky to me because I, I, you know, the simple version of they are the same thing is that they have the same properties. You're saying that two things that seem to have distinct properties are actually the same thing just seen from two different directions, which is entirely possible, right? It could be a an illusion of some sort, but I'm just not sure I see how it could work in this kind of case that if I look at this thing from one perspective, it looks like um, you know extended matter. And if I look at it from this other perspective, it looks like phenomenal consciousness. Well, I think we already know that that's true from our own case. Like, you know, when I look at you and, you know, you're making this facial expression, you know, I can tell that you're annoyed at me, but I can't like see your annoyance, you know? So like from your perspective, you feel annoyed, but from my perspective, I see, you know, behavioral indicators that you're feeling that way. Right. But that's sort of behavioral value laden indicators. I'm talking about like, you know, how we get from the brain states to like, it still seems like you still have to have some sort of connection between the brain states and the phenomenal states, even if they are, it's a connection that's internal to the atoms or something or internal to the electrons or something like that. Is that, it's just like a, it's like a kind of identity relationship, like the physical goings on in the brain, just our consciousness. So then it seems like we have problems that we get with classic identity theory, where it just seems like we can't give a very good account of how that identity relationship actually cashes out, and we still get the same kind of weird mysteries of of this identity relationship doing basically all the same hard work that the emergence relationship was doing a second ago, right? No, I think you I think you can if you're a dual aspect monist. <laughs> okay. Like I think that you can um so I mean, I, I feel I don't want to just like repeat myself, but it's mm-hmm. just that everything just is consciousness. But if you're not that chunk of matter yourself, then it you, you see that's when you see the dispositional um, behavioral aspect. That's like empirical observation. But in order to okay. see the consciousness aspect, you have to be the chunk of matter in question. So I think this kind of explains like why there is a problem of other of other minds where I can be certain that I'm conscious but I can't be as certain that other people are conscious because there's this unobservable uh-huh. um, intrinsic nature of matter that so is not your, available. On, right. On your view, is the electron in the same relationship to us as Nagel's bat in terms of we know there's something it's like to be the electron, but we don't know what it's like to be the electron? Yeah. So does that make electrons then a moral patient for us? Do you feel like 
it's something that we talked about a little bit in one of our earlier conversations, and I'm curious if you had any more time to think about this. Like, do you feel like we have to give moral considerability to the phenomenal states of electrons like we would with the bat? Um, you're really hung up on these moral objections to panpsychism. <laughs> um, well, it's not that it's, no, I just, you know, I want to know what this is going to mean if I adopt this view for the things that care that I care the most about. And so I just, like, I want to understand if we are saying that these things are phenomenally conscious, then that carries substantial weight for me in ethical, you know, ethical terms as well. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious if you still are, are resistant to the idea that we would, because like if, if your view is true, right, we don't know what it's like to be an electron. We could imagine that it's not very sophisticated or something, that it's very basic, um, but it could be the opposite, right? It could be incredibly rich to exist uh, as an electron. We have no way of discerning one way or the other. So what should we do about our engagement with electrons in our lives? Well, so... I just want to plant a flag first to say that it's not that I don't see that there's a problem for, you know, because most people think that consciousness has something to do with morality. You know, like mm -hmm. I happen to think that morality is kind of reducible to or grounded in or whatever, kind of like the experiences of conscious creatures. So you'd think that this would be like a big problem for me. But, you know, like um, Galen Strawson says that as far as I know, nothing changes in regards to morality. Um, I know that you find that to be like an implausible um, view. But the idea is that, you know, consciousness is necessary for morality, but it's not enough just for it to be like something. Like it also has to be capable of, you know, feeling some kind of like a hedonically charged state, you know, like it okay. has to be in order to be like a moral patient, it has to be, um, or have moral salience. Like it has to be capable of feeling like a, you know, a positive or negatively valenced state of consciousness. So, and, so you know, panpsychism doesn't imply that, you know, every conscious thing is capable of, ex you know, experiencing states of, you know, extreme hedonic value. Okay, so I think this is a really good point. It's really important because I think there's a bit of maybe a semantic issue going on here where when I think of sentience, I'm thinking of that borderline, the line between the things that have sufficient levels of what it's likeness and and you know i'm like i'm a little sympathetic to the view that like if you have sentience it can't be neutral that it will have this um hedonic component to it from the from the get-go uh, but that's certainly a debatable um claim uh but i i do think that like so, so put this another way, right? It seems like the panpsychist, even if we buy their view, they're still going to need to try to figure out where this other line is as well. And there, they're still going to be hung up on the hard problem like the rest of us are, right? It seems like panpsychism doesn't give us a, a way forward for, you know, where we're going to draw this other, um, you know, hedonic sentience line. Well, I have to nitpick at least one thing you said there, okay. which you said um, levels of consciousness, which mm. remember the by Nagelian, um, by the Nagelian definition. The, the levels of, of, um, of sophistication, I suppose. Sorry, excuse me. Right. Because there right. are no degrees or levels of sure. Nagelian. That's kind of where some of the problem um, lies. But the other one is, I, I didn't mean to imply that there's no hedonic value, period. I meant there's no significant hedonic value that should make you concerned about things that are not very complex. But I, I also want to say, though, that 
I don't see this as a an insurmountable problem for panpsychism. So someone mm-hmm. like a panpsychist could be listening to this and totally agree with you and, you know, kind of think that I'm being like too dismissive of it. But I just don't see this as like an intractable problem for panpsychism. It just strikes me as like a research project to, tr- you know, what are the moral implications of panpsychism? And I kind yeah. of gave my, my preliminary answer of, I think you have to be capable of experiencing significant hedonic value to be considered, a, you know, an object of moral salience. Yeah, please don't mistake what I'm doing here is to be like presenting some sort of knockdown argument against panpsychism. I'm just, these are the kind of research questions that I would be curious to hear more from panpsychists about. Just like, you know, I'd be curious to hear their thoughts on what what the differences are for science of mind if their view is true. Is there a different way that we should be going about, you know, doing neurobiology or something like that as well? Um you know, I'm also just curious from a psychology applied sociology standpoint, like what might change on this view? I, I mean, like, I'm not even like, you know, I could be sympathetic to you if you just said to me, look, yeah, I think we should care about how we treat electrons and we shouldn't go around casually <laughs> destroying electrons. Like, I'd be like, great, that, that, that makes sense. Right. Like, if you really like that seems consistent with a version of your view and, you know, it's not that much weirder than the Janes. So, like, it's not that I'm trying to trap you into some reductio ad absurdum here. I really am just like curious what it means, you know, so what what is tied to the what it's likeness that we are ascribing to electrons in this kind of situation i'm guessing you know correct me if i'm wrong but i'm guessing you're not you don't think there's any kind of science experiment that we could devise that would confirm panpsychism over you know strong emergentism or something like that right no there's no science experiment we could do to confirm materialism or panpsychism because sure. those are not those are metaphysics you know like they're metaphysical interpretations of you know, our observations and the data of experience and so on. So it's like a lot of people will say things like, oh, I'm a materialist because I want to empirically confirm my ideas. You don't know what you're talking about if you're saying that because you have not observed matter to be non-conscious. You know, it's not like science equals materialism or something like that. Um, You know, it's a metaphysical interpretation of the same data that we're all working with. But I'll say about the the moral question, though, I don't Mm -hmm. view this as really distinct from so you know like panpsychists think that human matter is continuous with all matter in the same way Mm. that human life is continuous with all biology so like we're a part of biology we're continuous with the biological world and panpsychists just kind of take that one step further and say we're continuous with the material world not just the biological world and so if you think that it's perfectly fine to believe that humans are more morally important like they're a greater object of moral salience or whatever than you know birds which i think is probably the right position you know they're not they they shouldn't factor in equally like one bird life is equivalent to one human life you know i don't believe that i i don't think very many people believe that you know this is just it's just the same issue just extended further down so if you think it's perfectly fine to think that humans are more valuable than chimps which are more valuable than cats, which are more valuable than mice, which are more valuable than bacteria, then it's just that same continuum extended down. So I have no concern mm-hmm. for electrons in the same way I don't have concern for, you know, bacteria when I'm lysoling a surface. 
Fair enough. Yeah, and that's that's a very strong kind of sentientism that would have to take that you'd have to take in order to get to a position where you have to treat all sentient beings as being of equal value. So I certainly don't yeah. think that you'd have to be committed to anything nearly that strong while still acknowledging their consciousness. So that's a, yeah, that's, that's really basically what I'm saying is like strong sentientism. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I thought you were just saying there um, in terms of it being the same idea of the spectrum kind of going all the way down and these other kinds of things that it makes the same sense to talk about it um, in terms of consciousness. So I think that's a good way to kind of summarize the the intuition in favor of the panpsychist position. Um, so we're getting close to the end here, and I want to do the, the lightning round. Do you have any final things you want to share about panpsychism? I guess I would just remind people that you know, you don't just get out of this problem by saying, oh, it emerges, or oh, consciousness is generated by the brain. Like, you know, emerge or generate, those those words are doing a lot of heavy lifting for you. And it's not so easy to make that idea precise and give it um, substantive content. And mm-hmm. I would say the questions that I would want an answer to for someone who opposes my view is, number one, is consciousness truly something new? that's appearing, you know, like in a, in a fetus or in the, in the scale of emergence and, um, is strong emergence possible. And, um, I, I just, I don't understand how someone can believe that consciousness is truly something new that wasn't there before and not accept strong emergence, which, you know, strong emergence in my view is just giving up. Like it's just getting something from nothing. Like it's, it's not reducible to its component parts. It, like for like a strong emergentist account of a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat would just be, yeah, there was no rabbit. There was nothing resembling the rabbit. Uh, it was, you know, there was no rabbit at all in any way. And he pulled a rabbit out of the hat. That would be a strong emergentist account. And like I said, it's just, that's just giving up, you know, that, that is the, um, you know, it's kind of the magical position here, just getting something from nothing. And um, so I would like to hear answers to those two questions. And, more specifically, I'd like to hear which of those four premises you reject. Do you reject the idea that we're made of matter and nothing else? Do you reject the idea that Nigelian consciousness is real? Do you reject the idea that consciousness is not vague? Or do you accept that you know radical emergence is actually a reasonable thing to believe in? Fair enough, though, except I, I want to at least say I think you're being a little too hard on the idea of giving up. I think a lot of folks out there right now absolutely deserve to give up and totally should. <laughs> um, no, do you I do. mind if I read one more quote before? Sure, one more quote, yeah. Okay, sorry, I can't resist because I really love William James. Okay. Okay. Um, the demand for continuity has, over large tracts of science, proved itself to possess true prophetic power. We ought, therefore, ourselves sincerely to try every possible mode of conceiving the dawn of consciousness so that it may not appear equivalent to the eruption into the universe of a new nature, non-existent until then. Merely to call the consciousness nascent will not serve our turn. It is true that the word signifies not yet quite born, and so seems to form a sort of bridge between existence and non-entity, but that is a verbal quibble. The fact that discontinuity comes in if a new nature comes in at all. The quantity of the latter is quite immaterial. The girl in Midshipman Easy could not excuse the illegitimacy of her child by saying it was a very small one. And consciousness, however small, is an illegitimate birth in any philosophy that starts without it, and yet professes to explain all facts by continuous evolution. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> um, I'm still... 
I'm still a Mysterian, but sure, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's do lightning round. So you are familiar with this. I imagine folks who are not, I will give you a list of things. You will tell me whether they are real or not real. Those are your two options. You do not get to hedge. You do not get to explain, uh, etc. Do you feel like you understand what you are in for? Yeah, and I'm dreading it. Yeah, great. Okay, <laughs> so let's um, put you on the hook first and foremost. Is anything real? Oh, yeah. Okay, so something's real. Let's find out what. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? No. No, just kidding. It's real. <laughs> Obviously. I have. What is wrong with you people? Of course it's real. I've, I've had people do a whole hour view on like something on the list and then say it's not real. <laughs> uh, free will. Uh, not real. Selves. Uh, selves. Yep, like a person. Uh, not real. Genders. Real. Races. Real. Species. Also real. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Uh, real. Gods. Or God? Not real. Society? Real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Definitely real. <laughs> Poles, <laughs> as in a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. I know I'm not a real philosopher anymore if I think chairs are real, but... <laughs> it's okay. You've already lost your P-card a long time ago. Uh, science? Uh, real. Natural laws? Uh, I don't know what they are, uh, but I'll say they're real. <laughs> okay, you're into the fuck it real cat at this point. Yeah. Uh, beauty? Uh, real. Causality. Real. And finally, dharmas. Not real. Okay. I think you everything survived. is real. <laughs> you think everything and not is everything is real except the thing that, uh, that Buddhists think is the only thing that's yeah. real. <laughs> uh, fair enough. How do you? I don't feel? really know what dharmas are. Um, I feel like I forgot that I don't know what natural laws are, and it stressed me out. Oh, so that'd be, you know, uh, the fundamental laws of, um, like there are different versions of natural law. Some of them are going to be things like, um, laws of who deserves to be king or laws of justice or mm. laws of survival of the fittest. I think there, or you could have it in the sense of natural laws would be things like the speed of light, um, physical yeah, laws. I mean, I have a pretty liberal notion of what counts as real. Like you said on Walden mm -hmm. Pod, this lightning round kind of turns everyone into a pragmatist. But mm -hmm. um, it's like, I well, I'm glad you didn't ask me my version of the list. I was worried you were going to, because I subjected you to a lightning round on Walden Pod. No, And no, I added no. a few extra ones. <laughs> we're doing we're doing testing, so we have to keep our, um, our categories consistent at this point. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I just have a kind of pragmatist idea of what mm -hmm. um, should count. I mean, I'm fairly simple minded on it, honestly. It just comes down to like language and use. Like if people are deeply confused about something, then I'll say it's not real. Mm -hmm. Or um, 
if it would be harmful to deny something's reality, then I would just say it's real. And mm-hmm. um, signaling that you think it's important. Uh, yeah, basically. And like, yeah. um, but you know, I have no problem saying that like free will isn't real because it seems like most people are kind of like natural libertarians and, and so on. Like if a Martian anthropologist picked up a Harry Potter book and thought it was a history book, then I would just be like, hey, Harry Potter is not real. Uh-huh. But if if they understand that it's a fiction book, then I'm like, yeah, of course, Harry Potter is real. It's more of a corrective, depending on the individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think um, I think there's something valuable in approaching this particular activity with beginner's mind and trying to just be sort of um, unphilosophical about it in a sense. Uh, so we are at our end here, Emerson. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you? <laughs> Yeah, you can listen to Walden Pod, and if you call it Walden Pond, I'll be upset because, like I said, I'm pretty happy about that pun. Lots of people call it Walden Pond, and it it, it upsets me more than I was prepared for. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can also uh, subscribe to Counter Apologetics, and you can follow me on. I just made a Twitter a couple months ago um, at Walden Pod, and you can add me on Facebook. I think that's about it. Fair enough. Well, thanks so much for coming on and for defending your just as absurd as all of the other philosophy of mind position. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no. And of course, you're uh, you're welcome back anytime to Walden Potter counter apologetics as well. Well, thanks very much. And I will catch you all back on the Twitters. All right. Thanks. Thanks again to all our listeners, and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the T for Two podcast, and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you.